coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. You can say like the way set point of someone will alter as they alter a country or their food that they're exposed to. So I have a lot of patients who, uh, a few patients who maybe when they move to America, they put on some weight. And then when they move back to London, they lose weight without, you know, any effort. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed bariatric surgeon and best-selling author of Why We Eat Too Much, Dr. Andrew Jenkinson. We discussed how to get your body weight set point down, what's wrong with calorie restriction, what is leptin resistance, the role insulin, stress, and sleep playing weight loss, and is one tip to get your body back to what it once was. Really enjoyed my interview with Dr. Jenkinson. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I have Dr. Andrew Jenkinson to the show. Welcome. Nice to be here, Brian. Yeah, thanks for coming on all the way from London, and I, uh, I'm excited to have you on and discuss your your book. When did the book come out? So it was published January 2020, the hardback, and then the paperback came out uh, January 2021. And yeah, it's pretty good. It became uh, Amazon and Sunday Times uh, bestseller. Excellent. And uh, the title is Why We Eat Too Much. Uh, the new science of appetite. So we'll we'll definitely dive into the book, but maybe before we get into the book, perhaps give individuals. I know you're uh, a general surgeon. You specialize in uh, bariatric and laparoscopic procedures, and mm-hmm. perhaps how did you sort of go down this road and uh, your interest in in getting into surgery and for weight loss and diabetes and things like that? Um, yeah, so I was training up in in general surgery. Uh, my sort of the end of my training was laparoscopic or keyhole surgery and it concentrated on upper GI. So basically stomach, did a lot of stomach cancer surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I sort of fell into the job because I'd already worked with a colleague who was doing bariatrics and he knew me. And as normally happens, he said, look, we've got a vacancy, you want to come for the interview. So I ended up being a bariatric surgeon without really having any formal bariatric training. But this was what happened like 20 years ago. Um, and yeah, he sort of taught me up um, and I started doing gastric bypasses, gastric bands, sleeve gastrectomies. Um, and yeah, suddenly my room, my waiting room was full, probably 80% full of uh, people suffering with quite severe obesity. Uh, and the rest of the sort of practice, you know, gallbladder, any whatever was sort of, um, sort of diluted away a little bit. And this is when I started to form a real interest in the disease, which is obesity. You know, why would these people come to see me and ask me to take their stomach out or bypass their stomach? So quite extreme surgery when conventional wisdom is, you know, well, why don't you just go on a diet and go to the gym? Right. So um, it got me thinking as, as someone who's from a relatively stem family, so doesn't have any, you know, subjective experience of, you know, having to try and lose weight and things like that. Uh, it just, it, it intrigued me why so many people had such difficulties. And the thing that really struck me was, I mean, this is, uh, it, and this is sort of mentioned in the introduction to the book, 
the similarities in people's stories. I mean, there was no collusion between people. I saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients and they would, you know, all say, and they still do say to me today, yeah, I can, I can lose weight on the diet, but I put it back on. Uh, and then I end up even heavier than before the diet uh, started. And then a lot of them say, um, I think my metabolic rate is low. You know, don't think I burn as much as my roommate or flatmates because mm. I don't eat as much, but I'm suffering with obesity and this guy's slim. Uh, or a lot of them would say, you know, I think it's in the family, I think it's in the genes. And again, looking at, you know, then when they come in with the family, you know, it's obviously there's something going on uh, from a hereditary basis. So okay. I just looked into all of these areas and yet yeah, started to get really intrigued by, by the whole area, by the whole sort of field of weight regulation and obesity. And that yeah, stimulated the research for the book. Yeah. And I'm curious, just as a bariatric surgeon, the people that came in and you did the surgery on, like, what is the success rate for them in the future and, and um, to keep it off and to maintain, you know, where they want to be as far as weight is concerned? Like, is it pretty su successful with this surgery? Um, yeah, I mean, basically, they need to be coached that this is going to reset their weight. And we'll talk about, you know, the weight set point where people's weight is set um, right. without surgical intervention or serious lifestyle changes. So with a bariatric intervention, like a sleep restriction or a gastric bypass, their weight will reset, for instance, from an average of 120 kilograms uh, down to 75, 80 kilograms within a year. If they then add in relatively simple and healthy lifestyle changes, so you know, eating you know, your own home-prepared foods, uh, not snacking between meals, now looking after yourself, sleeping, um, doing a little bit of exercise, all of these things, then their weight won't go back on. But a lot of surgeons don't, they just go for the operation. They say, okay, you're going to be, you're going to be cured. They still have bad habits. And particularly the sleep restricting procedure, you know, 15, 20% of people will put weight back on and, uh, yeah, feel a bit disappointed. Yeah. Cause I would imagine that that's the biggest obstacle is changing those habits that they've, they've had through, through, you know, decades, probably, um, just doing the surgery isn't enough. They need to follow up and make sure that they're changing the, you know, making lifestyle changes. This is actually, I've been commissioned by Penguin to write a second book, which is going to be called how to eat and then in brackets and still lose weight. And that is going to be concentrating on, you know, how people can change their eating and lifestyle habits. Uh, you know, how, the brain works, you know, the dopamine reward system and, you know, what processed and, um, you know, highly processed and, you know, slightly addictive uh, uh, food does to our brains and our behaviors. And so that once we have that sort of understanding, being able to unpick it, you know, so that's the, the basis of the second book. I, um, and I think it's, this is what people, because the first book, uh, I, the, the, the end part of the third, the first book, the you know section three, um, concentrated on you know what lifestyle and dietary changes were required. But you know it's not just being able to read a book; it's being able to change habits, which is really important. So a lot of people know what they're supposed to be doing, but it's these we're we're basically automatons. You know we are we're we're triggered by various environmental things, and half the time we don't think about what we're doing. Um, so I, I find a whole sort of habit thing uh, fascinating at the moment. Yeah, right. Like these habits that we're unconsciously doing every day and they just add up over time. And I always talk about like 
yeah, you can have all the great information in the world and read all the books, but if you don't sort of have sort of a burning desire or a reason why you want to, to do, you know, lose weight or whatever, you know, get stronger, if you don't have a reason why that's really driving you, then it's probably not going to be great. You know, you're not going to have long-term sustainability of that. Yeah, I mean, the first thing comes with, I think, understanding the issues. So understanding how your body and the environment works. Um, and, and then obviously wanting to change, but it's more, you, know, you have to be more than want to change. You have to have to almost change because you're educated about what the hell's happening to your body, you know? It's almost like you can be, you can do this thing successfully and still be 120 kilograms. You, if you cracked it in your head and you want to be that 80 kilogram person, you know, through, you know, lifestyle change or whatever, uh, then you can be. Um, but actually, I'm not. That, that's a bad example. Going from 120 to to 80, because that's the example of surgery. When you get to that level of obesity, you do have other issues like leptin resistance, which is explained in the first book. Um, but yeah, you can certainly lose a, a good proportion of your weight with lifestyle habit changes. Now, you talk about body set weight, and I remember reading a little bit. This was years ago. Dr. Jason Fung talks a lot about that as well. Uh, yeah. So you touch on uh, body set weight a lot. And I was mentioning that Dr. Jason Fung while back talked about body set weight and ways to reduce that. A lot of times that is brought on by genetics. Um, but how can individuals sort of, it's like the internal te body temperature, right? Like how can they get their body set weight down to a place where they're more comfortable, where they want it to be? So I mean, the first thing is to understand what the, I mean, in the book, it's we term it the weight set point. So every individual will have, you know, this weight set point that the part of the brain that um, controls our appetite and metabolism, i.e. how much energy we want to take in and how much energy we want to um, expand and how much energy we want to store. This is your weight set point. And it's sort of almost impossible to fight against that weight set point. So you can go to the gym and try and diet and whatever or starve yourself you know calorie restrict but the further you get away from your weight set points either up or down actually it's almost like a uh, elasticated sort of uh, spring uh, the further you get away the bigger the pullback um, and the weight set points so the, indi the individual's weight set points is actually 75 percent determined by the genetics so if you're from a family that suffer with weight problems, then, you know, it's sort of preordained that you may suffer. Um, but obviously you have to be combined that genetic predisposition with a, a probably a Western food environment where there is a lot of sugar, refined carbohydrate and artificial you know, other foods, vegetable oils particularly as mentioned in the book, uh, which you know, significantly affect the messaging messaging within your brain the hormonal you know um homeostasis of your weight set points so basically talking about insulin having a three six ratio cortisol levels these sort of thing so the the combination of your uh, genetics and your environment determine your individual's weight set point uh, so if, for instance you have you know a propensity to to be from a heavy family but actually you're in a environment where there is no western food trigger for that you know obesity you'll be okay but as soon as you move to an environment um where you know it's a western you know, western food and culture um you'll you'll really struggle and the, the, the worst thing you can do 
is then start calorie restricting because you're then training your body to be metabolically really efficient. Um, it's almost like saying, okay, we're in an environment where a famine comes along every six months, a severe famine, you know, where you're on, you know, eight or eight hundred, one thousand calories a day maximum. You know, sometimes you're starving yourself even more. Um, your body not only will have a very efficient basal metabolism, and basal metabolism is, you know, 70% of our total ex uh, expended energy, but also it will want to store more fat as an insurance against um, further famines. So these people who, I mean, a lot of my patients are recurrent diets, they've dieted for decades. Mm. And the longer it goes on, the really the more difficult it gets until the end of the road, they come to my clinic and say, look, I gave up, take my stomach out. I hear it's good. Um, so that's the way set point, okay? So we talk about genetics in combination with the environment. And the environment um, affects it, particularly with the food environment, um, with something called leptin resistance. So our body weight is normally controlled by this hormone called leptin. Uh, leptin comes from our fat cells. So the more fat cells we have, the higher the leptin level in our blood. And it's almost like a signal to the hypothalamus, which is that part of the brain that controls our appetite and, and metabolism. The leptin level in your blood is the signal to the hypothalamus of how much energy you're carrying. You know, have you got two months supply or have you got two weeks supply? Do we need to go looking for food or are we okay for a while? Are we in an environment where, you know, we keep having these famines every few months? Do we need to store a little bit more? So leptin, that leptin signal will tell, you know, it's almost like uh, the analogy in the book is it's like the gas tank in your, the gas tank meter, sorry, in your car. Leptin resistance comes about when the leptin level is high, but it's being blocked by two things. One is too much insulin. So the insulin and leptin you know, signal to the hypothalamus are the same. They use the same receptor. So if you have high levels of insulin, the leptin signal will not get through. So you'll, the level of leptin is high, but actually your hypothalamus can't see it. The second thing that happens is uh, as obesity is an inflammatory condition, releases something called TNF-alpha, this causes uh, hypothalamic inflammation as well against that dulls the leptin signal. And the analogy in the book is you're driving along the highway, um, going back to the gas tank meter analogy, you're driving along the highway and your gas tank meter is hitting, hitting red. You think, oh God, I've got to like uh, stop, I'm going to run out of petrol. Um, panic, try and find the next petrol station start to fill up. When you fill up, you realize it's full. You know, the problem is the gas tank meter making you feel as if it's empty. And this is what leptin resistance is. So full-blown obesity, when we see people who are you know, double your size, treble your size, particularly in America, people are really struggling. This is the disease. So their hypothalamus can't see any leptin. It's seeing, it's seeing probably the same amount of leptin as if you lost, you know, 10, 15 kilograms. It's actually seeing a really low amount of, of leptin because it's being blocked by inflammation and insulin. Um, so these people, uh, people who suffer with you know, severe obesity are absolutely ravenous all the time because their leptin level is perceived to be low. The hypothalamus thinks they're fading away and they have an extremely low basal metabolism. They're, they're, again, a, a response to perceived, you know, uh, fat, fat um, deficiency and, uh, you know, a lack of food. So the, the symptoms that we think 
sorry, the character the characteristics that you know popular Western culture thinks cause obesity, i.e., being greedy and lazy, are actually symptoms of the disease obesity. The disease obesity causes you to be voraciously hungry. And because it's embarrassing to eat in public, all these people binge eat uh, in private, you know, and it also causes you to be really, really knackered. Add on that, the fact that you're carrying around, you know, like 200 pounds extra, it's like, uh, it's a very sad disease. It's not understood by many people, including most doctors. So what, what would you say, you know, you talk about calorie restriction, obviously a lot of people, especially in the States, you know, believe in this in calories in calories out approach, you know, and, yeah. and there's some, maybe there's some truth behind that to someone that's maybe metabolically healthy, but to someone who's, who's not, and who's obese or hundred couple hundred pounds or whatever it is overweight, um, who has a sort of a wreck metabolism, you know, like you mentioned, calorie restriction can actually potentially wreck your metabolism even more. <laughs> So what steps for that? And what would you say steps for that? I mean, calorie, calories in and calories out are the ultimate. Okay. So you can't argue with the fact that if you can, you can throw someone into a, a, a prison cell or a concentration camp, whatever, and calorie restrict them, uh, force them onto a treadmill, whatever, they will lose weight. But when you're in a, a society where there is, you know, you, we're not uh, prisoners, we can rest up if we want to, or eat if there's food available you're then relying on the messages coming from the hypothalamus. And you can, you can fight against it for a while. You can try and calorie restrict to, to lose weight, but those signals will become stronger and stronger. And it's a little bit like trying to lose, you know, um, five pounds in weight through not drinking water. You can probably do that after two or three days. You will become quite dehydrated, but you're not going to, that's not, that's not a way of losing weight because mm -hmm. everyone knows that you're, Again, the hypothalamus, the thirst control center, you're going to be voraciously, sorry, you're going to be have a parching thirst. So, you know, weight regulation from the calorie point, from the fat storage point of view is the same. You know, it's like you, you can't just starve your way out of it because those signals coming from the hypothalamus are sometimes as, as powerful as, you know, if you try to lose weight ridiculously by, by uh, dehydrating yourself. Um, so the ultimate thing is to try and alter the weight set point. And you can only do that if you understand what the weight set point is. And that, that, that sort of, you know, uh, theory of, um, but actually borne out with a lot of scientific research of it being actually quite significantly due to insulin, but also inflammation and a little bit to do with the omega three, six profile, which we may go on to later, uh, essential fatty acids. We know, and you mentioned before we started this, this podcast that you'd had some sort of discussions about ketogenic dieting and things like that. We know ketogenic dieting, ketogenic diets work. Um, and they work because they significantly reduce the average amount of insulin you have in your body. And if you're suffering with obesity, certainly that leptin gets seen by the hypothalamus. And so uh, people easily will, if they're overweight, they will easily lose weight with ketogenic dieting. The problem is that it's really difficult to maintain a, a, a very low uh, um, carbohydrate intake in our society. Um, I, I sort of uh, take my hat off um, and congratulate people who can do it uh, long term, but not many people can. My book sort of suggests that a better way of doing it is to try and go uh, lowish carb, 
you know, uh, uh, try and get your carbohydrate levels. You know, first understand, you know, what the what carbohydrates are in various different foods, and then try and get, you know, your intake down to I don't know, less than 100, then 80, then 60. See if you can do 60. Then keto is like 20 or 30, isn't it? Uh, but if you can get down and not have any side effects and be lowish carb, um, I think that's going to have a really beneficial effect on your your insulin signaling, and it's going to let its leptin be seen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I mentioned to you, I just had a friendly debate uh, between sort of a low carb camp. You know, you have a clinical keto approach where it's very low carb, um, but then now you're starting to see that you know people aren't. The clinical keto approach was mainly for um, people with, you know, seizures and things like that. Um, and so sometimes long-term keto for some people can maybe even be harmful when it comes to hormones. Um, and once they sort of get their weight back in order, then they maybe can try to try trade, titrate those carbs up a little bit more. Uh, mm-hmm. And, but when you talk about carbs, I mean, it depends on which ones as well, right? They're not all created equal. Um, but to someone that's not metabolically healthy, um, usually it's the things that they're eliminating, right? If they're, if they're getting their carbs from 300 carbs grams a day to a hundred, a lot of times they're going to be eliminating the processed ones you'd hope. Um, yeah, a- exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I mean, I sort of, um, shied away a bit from the glycemic index, uh, way of looking at the carbs in food, i.e. the speed that the carbs goes into your blood in the book and i introduced this thing of the glycemic load of uh, of a food so you know the total amount of carbohydrate that is in for instance a potato you know um a slice of bread etc etc um to make people aware that that's i think that's how you can get your your total carb load down and by definition your average insulin levels down over over 24 hour period for a long term long period of time and what, what else would you say, uh, you know, you talk about like metabolism, what are ways to maintain a healthy metabolism, but also lose weight? I know you mentioned carbs. Are there any other ways that we can do that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the book doesn't really talk too much about exercise. It does, uh, mention uh, it a bit, um, I mean, I sort of say, you know, unless you have the time, you don't want to really be training like an Olympic athlete. You're probably going to injure yourself and you're going to balloon again, you know, when when you can't do like uh, 50 miles a week. Um, so I still think, and it, it's sort of just based on common sense. If you can do some vigorous activity for 30 minutes, you know, three times a week, this is what I tell my patients, enough that you're like sweat so much you need to have a shower that's going to, you know, force your metabolism up because as you're losing weight, even if you're losing it because your weight set points been decreased because you've changed the type of food that you eat, um, you're still going to get a decrease in, a natural decrease in your basal metabolism. But if you exercise regularly, you're going to like force that back up a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know exercise is great, not really just for expanding calories, but I think it's great because it improves insulin signaling. So if you do exercise regularly, your insulin works better and you don't need as much of it. And it decreases the amount of cortisol that you that you produce. And cortisol, again, is integral as explained, as is explained in the book in you know, 
glucose and insulin signaling. Um, so my perspective on you know the gym and exercise is you think you're running off the calories, but probably you're going to put those calories back in in the juice bar. Um, what you're actually doing, and obviously gyms do work because otherwise there wouldn't be thousands of them around, things that are around work. <laughs> Uh, it's not because you're you know burning off those calories, particularly in the gym. It's actually right. because you're making yourself metabolically much fitter, so you don't need as much insulin, and your cortisol levels are lower. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, you know, the, the always the saying is you can't outwork a bad diet. Um, I think there's a lot of truth behind that, but the benefits of exercise and putting on muscle, um, obviously, like you said, you you sort of have a better glucose tank, right? You can, you can, you're yeah. more insulin, you can become more insulin sensitive. And I also think too, one good habit can lead to other good habits, right? Like, you know, you start working out and then you're like, well, maybe I should, you know, change some of the things that I eat and, and, and cause that'll make me feel better and I'll be able to perform better in the gym. So I, I do think that like one good habit can lead to other and, and you can stack upon, upon those habits. I mean, one of the things that's introduced in the book is this explanation of how dynamic our metabolism is. So as, as I mentioned before, um, and a lot of people aren't really aware that you know the amount of energy you use before you move. So imagine just staying in bed all day and not actually even rolling over. So the amount of energy you use to heat your body, your heartbeat, the chemical reactions within your body, the digestion, the immune system, all of these reactions just to keep the body ticking over, breathing, things like that. Right. 70% of our total energy expenditure. Most of the rest is pottering around, walking to work, you know. Um, so that's sort of most of the rest. And then literally maybe a couple of percent to three percent, maybe five percent if you go to the gym is, you know, active energy expenditure. So the, you know, and, and that's 70 percent of our total, you know, uh, basal energy expenditure is very dynamic. It can expand or decrease. Uh, and one of the examples in the book, and this has been, it's been researched quite a lot, but it's just not really out there unless you actually want to look for it. Uh, and it's not taught in medical school. So we would say, you know, if, and there's a lot of apps that want to calculate your basal metabolism. So you'll put in your age, you know, um, you know, your sex, your weight, whatever. Uh, and it will say, okay, your basal, your average basal metabolism is, and so it would be 1,600 kilocalories per day. Um, if you want to lose weight, you've got to get down and start just taking in 2,000, whatever. Um, what the book highlights is if you take um, a group of, uh, for instance, a group of 10 people who look and, you know, look the same, the same age, same sex, same weight, same BMI, and you look at the highest metabolizer versus the lowest metabolizer of those group of 10 people, the difference in their metabolisms is over... 700 kilocalories per day, which is the same as a 10K run or you know, a large three-course meal. Um, and so this is why, and we, and we all know people who, um, you know, they can eat rubbish and they never put weight on. Because that's right. because all the guys who've got the 10K run just in their genes, that's like without going for a 10K run. Right. And you've got the other guys who have to go for a 10K run in order to maintain their weight. Um, and that meta metabolic variability is very dynamic and I, I looked into how you know what what is the mechanism from a physiological point of view uh where we can you know adapt our energy expenditure up and down it tends to be as we said before if you're calorie restricted 
you know, you're going away from your weight set point, you're going to get that pullback, your basal metabolism is going to collapse. If, on the other hand, you're overeating, which is what most people do in Western society, actually, quite often, you know, if we calculate how much weight the population should be putting on, it should be putting on a hell of a lot more than it actually is because our bodies are pulling us back from, you know, gaining too much weight too, too fast. So actually, most people are over metabolizing. And the mechanism is, uh, 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 and you will have heard of this, the, 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 the fight or flight response, the sympathetic nervous system. You heard a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So this is something where, you know, if we're scared by, you know, a, a, in, the, in the old days, like a, a, an animal or a lion, you know, you're going like, to get freaked out. Stress you're, you're response. Gonna, yeah. You'll start losing a lot of energy. You're going to be like uh, very, very strong. The glucose levels are going to be up. Um, right. And you're going to expend a lot of energy. You're going to be able to run. You're going to be able to think really fast and stuff like that and that's so that's a sympathetic activation um and then the parasympathetic activation the parasympathetic activation is when you're just relaxed and chilled out and there's no threat and you're conserving energy you can imagine just laying on the sofa you know um mm-hmm. just your heart beats down you're cold whatever um there's quite a lot of evidence when they look at studies that have um voluntarily starved people and they've lost 10% and then 20% of their weight and overeating experience where they put on 10% and 20% of their weight. And those studies show that it's the, it is the autonomic nervous system. So the sympathetic or parasympathetic tone of, um, of someone that will change and alter, you know, the metabolism upwards or downwards. So people who overeat have got a increased sympathetic tone and this is most people which is a reason actually for most of the population in Western, well, a lot of Western populations suffering with high blood pressure. Um, so we know that when people, I was just going to say, so yeah, you're saying side effect of over metabolism, over metabolizing. So everyone has an increase who overeats in the West has an increased sympathetic tone because they're burning off more so that they don't put the weight on so that they can maintain, you know, not, the body's actually trying to maintain their, their, their weight set points at that level, despite them trying to like, you know, overeat. And so they, a lot of people have a, a, an increased sympathetic tone. If you go to a bariatric clinic, if you get a patient who's not dieting, you know, they're going to have high blood pressure. They're going to have fast heart rate, um, that sort of thing. They're going to be sweating all the time because the core temperature is high, but they're like obviously you know, uh, responding to that. We know that the best treatment for high blood pressure is to calorie restrict someone. And so this sort of fits in. So these studies have really shown and highlighted the importance of what we thought was just to, due to, you know, uh, a stress response. Actually, the probably more important uh, function of that autonomic nervous system response is metabolic regulation and keeping us at a level of the weight that our hypothalamus wants us to be. Mm. So when you when you talk regarding a stress response, are you saying that people are tend to like overeat due to just being stressed? Are, are you, no, I think they overeat. No, no. Um, okay. well, obviously, like the Western, you know, societal stresses, work, family, you know, whatever, cause increased cortisol, which will you know, increase people's appetite and their weight, um, right. and that's something that's just we know. It's similar to if you, um, almost like living in the West is almost like a proxy drug. So if 
I started treating you with uh, steroids. I put you on prednisolone. Um, you would, in six months or three months, be you know a stone heavier. Um, you know, you try and fight it, but you'll just be a stone heavier. Even if you're someone who's able to maintain your weight for a long time. Um, same thing happens with the Western sort of cortisol stress response. You know, some people are going to be quite sensitive to that increasing cortisol level, and that's going to be one of the causes of their, their obesity. Right. Um, what was your question again? <laughs> no, I, I was just saying if you were trying to draw a line between stress and weight gain. Um, oh, overeating, yeah. I mean, yeah. the other thing we have is, you know, like we do have uh, the food industry is, you know, it wants to make a profit. It wants to sell food. It wants to make right. food delicious and addictive and there are you know significant you know addictive elements in processed foods which will get you hooked basically like a drug um so that's another you know cause of overeating now you talk about go, uh, go uh, the triggering of habits by advertising you know oh yeah the highly palatable processed foods and i use, i know you always mentioned the west and you're in london <laughs> is are the food habits where you're at just as bad as they are uh or they can be here in the, in the, in the West. That's another interesting thing. So, yeah, I mean, you can say like the way set point of someone will alter as they alter a country or the yeah. you know, food that they're exposed to. So I have a lot of patients who uh, a few patients who maybe that when they move to America, they put on some weight. And then when they move back to London, they lose weight without, you know, any effort. when they move to, I don't know, uh, UAE, from just from a, yeah, just from a change in environment, right? Yeah, just the quality of the food, and you know, like yeah. we have a big problem with obesity in the UK, but you know, when you go to America, um, there's certainly a, a bigger problem. And then when you look at the type of food that's available to the population, you realise why. And you got to bear in mind, you know, we see a lot of fat people around or obese people around, but you know, a lot of them are, are many of them are hiding away. Yeah, and you talk about seventy five percent of it being genetic. 25% yeah. being environment. And, you know, I guess to someone who, who is obese, is that, can that be sort of a tough pill to swallow, I guess, you know, like the fact that, yeah, you know, you, yeah, but, you know um, the human race and all animals are very heterogeneous. So they have, you know, differences in their genetic makeup in order to help them survive changes in the environment. You know, if we're in an environment where, Certainly, there was a food shortage. The people who have, you know, the genes that have, you know, efficient metabolisms, you know, uh, can, can store weight easily. These are the guys that would survive, you know, a, you know, a world catastrophe where there is not much food. Um, unfortunately, we're in, you know, the other extreme where there is far too much, not only calories available, but also the type of food that's going to cause these people to to, to put weight on. I think you just have to understand that you know you're you are um, prone to weight gain if you eat bad foods. And in a way, uh, and I say this to patients, you can look at it as a positive in that you know that you have to eat healthily. You know you have to eat you know mainly you know, old-fashioned foods, meat, fish, right. vegetables, single single ingredient fat. foods. Right. Do a bit of yeah, do a bit of exercise. You know, compared to the guy who was naturally slim and might not eat very good and may not exercise. Actually, from a metabolic standpoint, you know, he's not that healthy. He looks okay, but right. you know, at least you're forced if you want to be, you know, a relatively normal weight. You're forced to be healthy. 
um, until the once they get that, you know, it's 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 not so bad. But I mean, the whole um, the whole thing about like um, obesity being seventy five percent preordained is from uh, twin and adoption studies. So these are many different studies throughout uh, lots of different countries where they look at uh, identical twins that have been um, adopted by different parents, um, different families at birth. So obviously they've got absolutely identical genetics. And they found that there was a, a 75% concordance with their weight. So mm. if you're from a slim family, both, you know, both offspring are going to be slim, even if one's brought up in, a, in an environment where, you know, there's bad food culture and, no, you know, not much exercise, they're still going to look like their sibling. Which is sort of what you'd expect. I mean, they're going to have the same color eyes and they're going to be the same height. So you would right. expect they're probably going to be, you know, similar weight. Um, obviously, if you if one is uh, grows up in you know rural Africa and one grows up in New York, then they're going to be different because one's not going to be triggered. But like if they if they're brought up in the same country where basically you are exposed to pretty much the same food, um, then they will be similar weight afterwards. And I know you touch on in the book a little bit, maybe we can talk about it as the omega-3 versus omega-6 fatty acids and, and how that could play a role in, in, in weight gain. Yeah. That so weight, I mean, ratio. yeah, yeah. I mean, we know about ketogenic dieting. We know about the, the importance of insulin signaling. Um, but I think the other major important uh, factor that, you know, Western populations have become fat is this big, um, change in our polyunsaturated fatty acid profile on our cells. So just to explain, polyunsaturated fatty acids uh, or essential fatty acids are like fat vitamins. So we can't, we can't make them. We can make pretty much everything. We can make cholesterol. We can make, you know, lots of things, lots of different types of fats. But we can't make two types of fats. And one is omega-3 and one is omega-6. Um, and as I said, they like fat and vitamins, but we don't really understand li lipid metabolism very well yet. We don't understand it like we understand, you know, vitamin, you know, the, the importance of different vitamins and what they do. So this sort of area is, you know, uh, formative research at the moment. But we do know that the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 on your cell, every single cell has got omega-3 and omega-6. It determines... One, how well insulin is going to be it's going to enter into the, into the cell, and two, the amount of inflammation around in the body. When you go, oh, sorry, so, and the two types of uh, fatty acids are included in two different types of foods. So, omega three is included in uh, basically anything uh, green leaf, you know, so um, and anything that's eaten grass and green leaves and plankton, so. Um, so, so like so, yeah. oily fish, right? Fatty fish get high omega three. Yeah, so anything. This is why you know fish got so much omega three in them because they're well non-farmed fish, right? Uh, so natural fish, um, you know, sea fish because they eat plankton. Um, that's a whole is, nother. That's on a whole nother topic. All the farm fish and what and what they're eating. You know, and this is why. Yeah. Well, there's two of them with the omega-3-6 profile as well, um, right. very importantly, because, yeah, there is a big difference in the omega-3 profile of farm fish compared to non-farm fish. Right. And it's the same with meat from cattle that have eaten grass rather than... than um, Corn, nuts. soy. 
So the omega-6, on the other hand, is found in seeds. Um, and we know that, you know, foods that have a lot of omega-3, so going back to the, you know, the good, the, the good one is omega-3, they tend to oxidize really easily, so they go off. So you can imagine fish going off within 24 hours if it's left out. You know. Anything that goes off, basically, probably has got quite a lot of omega-3 in it because it oxidizes. The omega-3 causes oxidization. But this is not good at all for, you know, food that is being bought and sold by food manufacturers. They don't like food going off. They need food to be... You, when uh, you say food going yeah. off, you mean like get, getting bad? Getting... Yes. So okay. yeah, <laughs> yeah, going bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so there are two types of food that have omega-3 and omega-6. Omega-3 is the good one for ourselves and omega-6 is not so good. Uh, omega-3 is in fresh foods and omega-6 tends to be in processed foods. Um, omega-3 comes from any food, you know, that is grown from a plant. Grass has got a lot of omega-3 leaves, anything sort of associated with chlor um, yeah, chlorophyll chloroplasts, um, so plankton as well uh, in the sea. So anything that eats plankton. So this is why fish have got high omega-3 levels and you know this oil is really good for us. Omega-6 tends to be in seeds and, and nuts and that sort of thing. Um, it's almost like a winter type food, um, but it's been used by the, you know, the, the food industry to produce vegetable oils, so nut oils and vegetable oils, which we're sort of told is good for us, but actually when you look at the science, it's not so good. Um, and food that, you know, as I say, is fresh, tends to go off and it's not great for the food industry because they make great profits because it can't sit on the shelf for very long. Right. Whereas food that can stay on the shelf for a year or six months or whatever, uh, tends to have all the omega-3 removed from it because otherwise it would oxidize and uh, a lot of omega-6 oils and, and stuff like that in there to preserve it. And we know that if people are exposed to a Western diet, the omega-3-6 ratio on their cells, because these two fatty acids are playing an essential part in insulin signaling on our cells, that ratio goes from, so the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio goes from between one to one and one to four, naturally, to when you are exposed to a Western diet, one to 20 to one to 30. So there's a massive, dilution of the effect of omega-3 uh, on every cell you know in your body and omega-3 facilitates insulin um, um, messaging so you don't need as much of it and also decreases inflammation whereas omega-6 interferes with uh, insulin signaling so you need more insulin uh, and also increases in inflammation so in an indirect way it it's almost like having a, yeah, a highly refined sugary diet, but actually it's because it makes your cells need more insulin because the insulin isn't functioning properly. So yeah, this is the reason that, you know, from a, um, when you look at the, to the data of the populations um, exposed to, to Western diets, you know, they, uh, as soon as they're exposed to Western diet, they, have a problem you know, with obesity. And I think it's not just sugar and refined carbohydrates. I think it's the omega-3-6 profile as well, which is why, you know, fast food, you know, it doesn't have to have a load of sugar in, but if it's dripping with vegetable oil, uh, it's going to have a really a detrimental effect on your metabolism and increase your weight set point. Yeah. And, and I know you talk, I think, a little bit in the book regarding, you know, cooking your own food. And I always touch on that on this podcast because, 
you know, you can control what's going in it and you're, you don't have to cook in these vegetable oils when obviously you, the, these vegetable oils get heated, they get oxidized, they can cause inflammation as opposed to cooking in, uh, I, I like to use ghee, uh, but you cook in tallow, um, even, you know, don't get me started on the saturated fat uh, arguments. So there's a big section in the book on, you know, how that, you know, whole scare story of, uh, natural saturated fats in dairy products and you know red meats causing you know ultimately heart disease it doesn't if you have uh this you know condition familial hypercholesterolemia one in 500 people have that you, and you tend to really struggle you know in your 40s you're dying from heart attacks and things like that yeah you've got to avoid saturated fats but right. if you don't have that you know saturated fats are very neutral as far as omega-3-6 profile I was concerned they're not going to cause obesity this is a you know it's got a terrible name fat it doesn't make you fat People <laughs> think it does, but it doesn't it's actually right. really good for you, you know uh, and you know the developing people in the developing world and you know the yeah the, the non-western world understand the you know the nutritional value of saturated fat this is why awful you know the in the innards of uh, of an animal are prized so much more than you know, the meat on an animal. Um, right. Because, you know, we instinctively know that this food is good for us. Um, so, yeah, all of those studies that looked into the relationship between saturated fat, cholesterol levels, and levels of heart disease are explained in the book, and, you know, they're unpicked. And that, you know, that body of research is seriously flawed. And when, you know, the food scientists started to tell us, look, you've got to avoid saturated fat, we went into a diet of you know much more refined carbohydrates and the whole population became obese this was like in the early 80s so yeah big uh epidemiological um, yeah. Up. <laughs> yeah 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 and that's something that's get talked that gets talked about a ton in the states i think more a lot of people are understanding this um that yeah. doesn't mean the food manufacturers necessarily are changing their ways but that's why it comes down to if you this is the problem. Though. The problem is yeah. you know, that, that when something is so ingrained in a population, it's really difficult to you know get that you know get that out. Um, right. Oh, I know. Like, and it's there, really it, ingrained. But you know, when you go and have your juicy steak, that you know that's going to fur up your arteries. And this is how we think. You know, this is how your your, your cab driver is going to think. You know, he's been you know hypnotized into this. You know, um, but yeah. it's not true. It's really good for you. Yeah. Now I know we're coming up on, on about an uh, hour here, but I just wanted to ask you one one last question that I ask all my guests. If you would give, and you've given a lot of, we've gone through a lot of good tips, but if you were going to give one tip to, let's just say, a middle aged individual that was looking to, you know, get their bodies back um, to what it once was, maybe 15, 20 years ago, what what one tip would you give that individual? Eat like you'd eat a hundred years ago. Yeah. So natural home prepared foods, you know, no takeaway, no processed foods, don't snack. People didn't use to snack. That's a new bad habit we've got into two meals or three meals a day, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Like set in, in, in the seventies, right. People would have three meals a day and now it's six, seven, eight meals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're just t totally constantly topping up our insulin levels and making ourselves fat. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah, I like that. I like that. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, your book, "Why We Eat Too Much: The New Science of Appetite." I'll uh, I'll definitely put a link in the in the show notes for that. 
And is there a good place for people to follow uh, any, you know, any of your other things that you're doing, maybe when your new book comes out? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, um, MR as in Mr. Um, okay. AD Jenkinson one. So yeah, at MR AD Jenkinson one. Okay. Um, but I'm not very active on it, but I've got a lot of historical stuff that I put in there. So, um, and when the new book comes out, um, and yeah, whenever any translation comes out of this book, I put the cover on, it's been translated into nine languages. So, um, okay. yeah, all good. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, um, for coming on the podcast. We, we, we got our times, right. You, you being in London and me being in Chicago. So, um, I appreciate all the knowledge and, uh, thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Brian. Brilliant. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine, and I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.